What's up, Dune fans? Welcome back to the Dune Not Enter podcast, where today, instead of just finding spice, Paul and Jessica get a little more than they bargained for. Maybe I'm understating. They probably got a lot more. I'm your host, Humphrey Shu, and joining me are my friends and co-hosts, Fillmore John. Hey, guys. And Nolan Zhang. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we will be beginning the first half of chapter 27. So, so far, this uh, chapter has been pretty interesting, um, but I'm sure y'all's lives are more interesting. So, uh, <laughs> anything to, to update us on? Anything really fancy? Well... Um, for me, I realized that I can't read like the airplane e-tickets, and I was basically <laughs> told that like I was actually not arriving at four o'clock. I'm actually arriving at ten o'clock, and I was like, "Aha! Oh, oops!" <laughs> Wait, <laughs> or four or four a.m. or four p.m. Oh, four p.m. Oh, okay, you scared me. Okay. Okay. Oh, no, uh, ten ten o'clock. That's good. At least, uh, at least you get more time yeah, once you once you land. Well, you get more time to to explore once you land. Do you want to tell everyone where you're going? Or? Uh, so I'm going to be going to the University of Southern California for Fancy. the USC Bover Scholars Program. Wow. Yeah, I got wow. in Smarty. yesterday. I went to... I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nolan's actually, a genius. It's okay. I don't know how I got it. I don't know how I got it. By honestly. being smart. I don't know. But I got it. <laughs> Uh, yesterday I went to take a COVID test. I didn't realize that I did take like a lab one. So like I rushed over to oh, CVS yesterday yeah. and I actually kind of lied that my uncle was my dad because I didn't want them complicating things. I was like, because I needed to go this Sunday, right? If I don't get it today, then the results won't come back in time to send the results over to them by Friday. So I just lied. I was like, yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Yeah, cool, cool. So ended up testing negative, right? Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of COVID uh, tests, I actually got a rapid test one today as well. Oh what for uh so i'm actually going volunteering down in san antonio soon so i'll have and they needed a covid type of uh, covid of test course, result right right cool cool yeah and Very also exciting. Sticking it up my nose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that it was so uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Yeah, it is yeah, yeah. i don't know i haven't gotten a test in a while but i got it once and it was really weird yeah it feels Maybe like you... my nose does more to my nose than i thought yeah yeah it's like super sensitive up there so you feel like you're gonna sneeze all the time yeah it, it like feels really weird anyways cool cool very exciting well yeah so um without further ado nolan uh you can take it away with the epigraph okay so today's epigraph reads at the age of 15 he had already learned silence from a child's history of muadi by the princess Irland. so we have another short one-liner epigraph yeah herbert's getting lazy child's yeah I don't know. Yeah, Herbert, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's just more impactful. I don't know. But it's from a child's history of Muad'Dib. So even as a child, Paul has some praiseworthy, forever remembered moments to be written down and remembered by history. So now the epigraph tells us that he has already learned silence. However, I don't think this means that like Paul was like, he never spoke again after 15 years old. I mean, though, maybe that is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> Rather, from the context of the chapter, I think it does have something to do with the ability to, like, say, stay hidden on the sands, mm-hmm. like, perfectly invisible, particularly to, like, the sandworms that are believed to be alerted by, I guess, our theory is that tremors in the sand above, right? Right, right, right. So, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's more reasonable than him staying silent for his memes. <laughs> but, I mean, All another interpretation... Like kind of would be that he knows what to say and when to remain silent but i think yours makes more sense given the context of the chapter right um, yeah. yeah so you know he's you know he's just slithering along on the sand he's just gliding <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> Anyways, cool, cool. All right, thank you for that analysis. Um, before we start the bulk of the chapter, we'll do our quote section. Um, and I've probably explained this a lot already, but uh, basically, uh, we moved the quote section to the beginning so that we can analyze it later. Um, so, Fillmore, yes, you have the first quote as usual. Okay. So, for my quote, I chose, I can hear him now, and I will make the rivers dry, and sell the land into the hand of the wicked, and I will make the land waste, and all that there, all and all that is therein by the hand of strangers. Wow. That's a... Mm -hmm. it, it feels really religious writing, I feel like. Mm -hmm. It yeah. does feel kind of religious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I'm reading the Bible, but yeah. Well, it's by Gurney, so uh -huh. I guess you yeah, can get I mean, an idea. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly. Right. It's it's probably from the OC Bible. Probably yeah, OC to be honest. Bible. Yep. Yeah. The original content Bible. <laughs> anyway, so the my quote I picked was like a chip on a geyser, speed them up and out, a winged speck with a core within a core of winding dust lighted by the second moon. So just some imagery. Yep. <laughs> My quote is, it occurred to her that mercy was the ability to stop. If only for a moment, there was no mercy where there could be no stopping. Mm, yeah. Mm. Very, very profound. Gotta go fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <You> just don't <laughs> stop believing. I just keep running. You know? <laughs> just keep running. That's mercy. Yeah. Indeed. Anyways. Cool. All right. So let's get into the chapter here. So we start... In the point of view of Paul, who is still in the middle of piloting the Thopter through this monster standstorm, so we haven't really moved much. I mean, they haven't really moved much since we last saw them. Um, he's not alone though, because he's got all this Mentat and Quisat's Hotterock awareness to help him, so he can, you know, accurately do all the things he has to do. Um, uh, probably any normal pilot w would have been killed already, but he's yeah. he's looking yeah. for a vortex. Um, to get himself out of the bulk of the storm and he swerves into one that lifts him and here's my quote like a chip on a geyser speed them up and out a wing speck within a core of winding dust lighted by the second moon so i picked this quote for my weekly quote because what imagery to start off this chapter i mean is if and if that isn't enough here's some more imagery you know paul looked down saw the dust defined pillar of hot wind that had disgorged them saw the dying storm trailing away like a dry river into the desert moon gray motion growing smaller and smaller below as they rode the updraft so it's just you know you can visualize it so well you know you can see the the dust and and like the second moon you know shining and lighting up the particles and you know, all, like the pillars of dust and sand flying, right? It's it's a really a surreal experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think honestly, like the best part about Herbert's writing is the ability for him to put this imaginary sci-fi world into like visual. And I think that also really helped in, I hope it really helps in the creation of the movie because it gives directions of this like vague interpretation that I know some people get mad if you misinterpret from the source material and so on. Yeah, you're really able to imagine what's going on and see the what's see all the plot points because in other books like it's Sometimes kind of it's difficult. Vague. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of difficult to imagine what's going on, but in here Everyone's you can like up to your yeah you can see everything step by step. Yeah, he spells it out really well, and it's mm -hmm. it's really nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I also think like this insane ability of Paul is being displayed right here, like being aware of every single minute detail. It's just, I guess, to me, it's not only like the fact that he's able to survive the storm, but it's also like a foreshadowing of the massive upgrade. I believe his combat power must have increased that now that he has like both Menta and Bene Gesser abilities. Because if he can see and feel everything in like an all-consuming, all-powerful sandstorm, 
Paul can for sure be aware of the entire situation on like a battlefield and his opponent's moves and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Right, right but another I level of awareness. Mm -hmm. But I feel that even with all these ab absurd abilities, it's still going to be very difficult for him to navigate through the storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, we, as we can tell through the imagery, but it really does seem like he has become one with the desert. Yeah, right. yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's, you know, he's really able to immerse himself into a situation and kind of live, you know, every part of it. And mm -hmm. I think that's what makes it so, what makes him so, you know, incredibly aware of everything. Right, but right. it's crazy that they've been in this storm for four whole hours. I mean, that's just that's insane. Shorter, you know, yeah. I'm I'm surprised that the Thopter didn't just rip to shreds. Paul's got some skillful piloting, right? Because it's a really significant fact. Jessica says she feels reborn after all of this because it signifies that. I mean, in my opinion, she's been reborn into the Fremen way of life, right? Because if you notice. In the rest of this chapter, she no longer has those qualms about desert travel and drinking from her still suit or any of the Fremen things that she had before. Remember a few <laughs> chapters ago, she was hesitating to drink because she felt that, you know, it was an acceptance of the Fremen way of life. But now she has no qualms anymore. Yeah, so I think Jessica's basically just gonna haze into the Fremen way of life, honestly. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I guess, like, they said, overcoming of this near-death experience only through her sheer powerlessness on her part was exactly the type of thing that Jessica needed to finally give up her inhibitions and also to begin trusting in Paul's intuition along with Fremen. But I think another thing is that it kind of reminds me of baptism because they went into the storm and then now they're out of it, like, above, they rose above it. So it right. they go in and then they come out. And then like yeah. the whole saying, like, you're a new man, like after you. Yeah, after right. Because mm -hmm. in certain religions or cultures, people bathe in a river or some sort of body of liquid to signify their rebirth. Mm -hmm. But in Dune, I guess you take a bath in sand to show that you've been reborn as a Fremen. Yeah, especially with all like the water references with regarding to the sand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because isn't water an archetype to show cleansing? Right? Yes, it is. Yeah, like it, it washes your at least in Christian, mm -hmm. it washes your sin away, or like yeah. it washes your old self. I mean, since since there's no commodity of water on Arrakis, I'm supposing it's now sand has taken that that archetype. <laughs> yeah. But once again, I kind of want to put four whole hours into context. That's like a whole star test. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or for I people mean, who don't have star tests, what, like, isn't it called like an IOA e e test? E or e EOC. I mean, we e call e it EOC. Yeah, it, it's just uh, it's it's longer than the SAT. How about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. SAT is like three and a half hours. Yeah, so that's that's really insane. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, so imagine you know taking a whole SAT on this on this plane. So that's that's he's how got, it feels. Yeah, he's got the perfect score. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Oh. I think I also wanted to read this part that I came across this chapter. It reads, It was like the litany, she thought. We faced it and did not resist. The storm passed through us and around us. It's gone, but we remain. Mm -hmm. Basically, this is a callback to two episodes ago of the fear is the mind killer and that fear can only be dealt with through the path of least resistance described by Jessica mm -hmm. before they went on this crazy plan and before they dove into the sandstorm. So right. it seems like for Jessica, at least, letting it pass by worked out well for her and Paul. I think Herbert may be telling us that for every bad time, there's both a beginning and an end, and all we have to do during the bad times is to hang on to not let go of the hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I guess in this case, the path of least resistance is, this, or in the case of the storm, would be finding the right vortex so that they aren't torn to shreds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Quite still literally. Have to do some work. Right. Quite literally. But yeah, it's a really nice illusion, if I can put it that way, to to to, to a few episodes ago. You know, it's it's the 
it's kind of the conclusion because she said this, you know, um, Bene Gesserit verse, and then now it's like concluding that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so here's a quote I wanted to read, and um, it's like a really long quote, so we'll have to break it up. But uh, there's way too many cool things um, to hit on this passage, so yeah. buckle up. They were out of the storm, but still not out into the full view of his prescient vision. Yet they had escaped, and Paul sensed himself trembling on the verge of a revelation. He shivered. The sensation was magnetic and terrifying, and he found himself caught on the question of what caused this trembling awareness. Wow, so that's the first chunk. Right, so, I don't know. I think we can find that Paul, though he gained some of his vision back during the storm, I think in some ways he doesn't have it back to the full capabilities that he prefers to have it, like the full entire, like, I could see the future, every single mm-hmm. like alternative he's definitely buzzed up after that whole four hour ordeal i guess the only thing comparable in our world is maybe like adrenaline rush Mm -hmm. but i guess if it's similar to adrenaline rush or like if we just think of it that way does that mean like his power everest breaks i.e like after afterwards like a sugar crash where he experienced this like crash after overusing his ability because i know in a lot of at least fantasy they run on this resource either like mana or something else oh yeah yeah well, I'm not necessarily sure if his power needs breaks, but I feel like there's more of a fulfillment of requirements needed in order to reach that level of prescience. Yeah, mm-hmm. like consuming enough spice, you know, being in the right position and, right. and everything. Right, because and... when they were in the storm, they were just completely covered and there was just like nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. But then now that they escaped, he's able to actually see past everything. Yeah, I can right. see that. Like, it's a based on categories of how much he needs it, or like how much he can activate the categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Cool. So yeah, I mean, it's that's the first chunk, and here's the second chunk of the quote. Part of it he felt was the spice saturated diet of Arrakis. So again, you know, the spice. But he thought part of it could be the litany, as though the words had a power of their own. I shall not fear, cause and effect. He was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on a brink of self-awareness that could not have been without the litany's magic. So here, it's really interesting because we get a hint at magic, and this is, again, you know, not the first time I've said this, but magic is something reserved for fantasy, and and I feel like Paul is giving the words weight more than the words actually have weight themselves. Yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this whole I shall not fear kind of is his mantra. I mean, he, he's a little superstitious or something, right? And then he, he believes that these <laughs> these words have this effect on him. You know, like they help focus him, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also interested because Paul is hinting at this magical thing. So is he trying to claim that the prophecy is lending him power to his plot armor? Or is just like, here's the thing, the problem with like self-fulfilling prophecies is that at what point is it fate? And at what point was it like the individual's ability, like Paul's ability? So I'm not really sure because Paul believes maybe because he's following these ancient like prophecies, he's following the correct path per se. And maybe because he's following the path that the Muad'Dib is supposed to be walking, he is alive because he's taking on the role of the Muad'Dib. I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's well, this is one of the reasons why I dislike prophecies because they're always too ambiguous. Yeah. I want to believe that the main character, in this case, Paul, achieved victory or got through an ordeal because of their own ability and not because they had fate on their side. Yeah, I mean, and the, the prophecy, a lot of the times, it just becomes 
you know, oh yeah, the prophecy was bendable anyway. It was always your own belief in it or something. And it's, it's like it's, in Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, it kind of defeats the purpose. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> so, what's the point of having a prophecy? Might as well just give the character a development arc of their own without some form of prophecy. And and you know, it's not really clear how Herbert will flesh out Paul's prophecy. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll have to kind of keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so here's the last short chunk of the quote. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible rang through his memory. What senses do we lack that we cannot see or hear another world all around us? Mm. Huh, right. I don't know. Because I'm kind of confused by this part of this quote. Because in theory, like, another world is just unfamiliarity with the world, right? Because right now, Paul has some pretty extraordinary abilities not available to anyone else in the universe and here it's like what senses do we lack like bro you have you have more senses than me possibly <laughs> so like maybe for at least outside of paul's context i'm sure the orange catholic bible wasn't written for paul <laughs> i yeah. think it might be telling us to like for regular humans to attune our senses to the world around us to maybe see things that we've ignored in the past world that we've overlooked mm-hmm Mm, so you think it's more of a reference to normal people than for people like Paul? Yeah, because yeah. I feel like Paul is like that one in like a billion, and he's just like, what senses do we lack? Probably <laughs> more than a billion, one in like a couple trillion, because it's throughout yeah. the galaxy, right? Yeah, it's it throughout like, history too. Mm-hmm. So it feels like well, hypocritical Paul's Paul's part to be like, what senses do we lack? Yeah, yeah. Well, he sure doesn't lack point, any, but it, yeah, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, because at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if Paul had six or even seven more senses. So mm-hmm. it's strange to think that even someone at Paul's level is missing some details. Yeah, we'll never see. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, if I was in an eight hundred mile sandstorm, my sense would, senses would be limited as well. Right. We could cut Paul some slack here. Is yeah. the Orange Catholic Bible um, a Bene Gesserit text, uh, or, or I, I don't remember if it was ever said. Um, I don't think it's like I think they're just particular religions that were kept after the after like the whole revol the Great Revolution. Yeah, the Orange Catholic mm-hmm. Bible and the Valerian Jihad. Yeah. yeah. So I think the Bene Gesserit does draw heavily from these holy texts. Though they I think they also have their own special way of doing things. So mm-hmm. Yeah, because the main their main purpose is to serve the Quizal Tatarak, right? Uh-huh. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. I'm not sure how much the Bene Gesserit actually influenced the uh, development of these texts over time as well, because uh-huh. we know that they have the, uh, what was it, the people that went and like installed prophecies around the world. Oh, missionary, yeah, missionary. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I mean, they, they probably had a lot of uh, impact on the religions because religion is one of the many ways to control people. You know, so. mm-hmm. Right, cool. Okay. So that was a large chunk. Yeah, but yeah. very, very but interesting understood that better or at least have more insight into it or Mm -hmm. see the different perspectives that we have on it right Mm -hmm. okay now i just wanted to read this part of this quote because it represents something that we've discussed from earlier in the chapter but it says we have water and steel suits if we can find food we can survive a long time on this desert fremen live here what they can do we can do so this is from jessica Mm -hmm. and it's just like what we mentioned earlier this is a massive turnaround on her perspective because we already said that the sandstorm rebirthed her, right? And here we finally see, like, the first decision on her part of disregarding her previous lives, condescending of, like, Fremen society, their ways of life, also, like, the discomfort of their lifestyle. She's like, we can do it, too, if they can do it. So now she's just like, we must match them. So she sees them as actually, like, 
more uh, vehicles, I guess, right? Yeah, more vehicles, or like she needs to catch up to them at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she kind of sees at this point that there's no other way to live in the open desert mm-hmm. <laughs> other than the Fremen way of life. Yeah, so she's at least the, the Fremen way of life is the most fleshed out way to live, and mm-hmm. it's the tried and true method. Uh huh. <laughs> right. So I mean, she she she's kind of her back's against the wall here in a sense. Yeah, <laughs> she's dumb. Right, but I wanted to ask, like, what are sandworms attracted by again? So, I know they're attracted by shields, but I don't think there are any shields on this thopter. So, why is Paul worried that, uh, you know, that the that the worms are coming? Maybe it's like disturbances in the sand or something like that. Uh, so I think they're attracted by vibrations in the sand, and that's why shields aren't recommended because it vibrates the sand around the person, making them an easy target. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh huh. I think the theory is supported by. Also, just like before the spice mining, how there's no, they don't use shields because they're mining for spice. But I think just like how they're like shifting the sand, digging through it, and causing such a great disturbance, the worms can't stand it and they have to go. And I think it's also supported by the reason why rocks are a good place to hide. Not because, well, obviously, they, okay, at least we believe that the rock is indigestible by worms, so they don't eat it, right? But also because maybe it's because they block the vibration and shifting that usually happens when people move on sand. And we know that Paul, when he landed, he, Hit a bunch of sand dunes. Yeah, on his way to slow down. himself down. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Well, I wouldn't say that they're in the indigestible because they did eat like a whole metal base earlier. Or what, what was it? It was the spice mining thing. Oh yeah, and the, whole, and like, they just ate the thopter. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, they. The, I, I, feel, yeah, I feel like I the, rock, the rock is just too big for them. Yeah, that's what yeah, I was thinking too. too big. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a a huge ledge kind of area. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, the the worm can't consume the whole area of Earth, right? So, mm-hmm. I guess, so leave yeah. them alone, right? Okay, so the imagery when they run from the sandworm is absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. So it goes: the first rock shingle, like a beach slanting from the sand, lay no more than ten meters ahead when they heard metal crunch and shatter behind them. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like there's a shredder machine chasing them, except this machine is 400 meters long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's crazy. You know, this worm and later, you know, we get some references to its size and and mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's a it's a pretty big beast, you know, not your average household pet. Definitely yeah. <laughs> much, much more than that. Right. So Paul ends up crashing the plane somewhat anyway, but it's not really his fault since he had to pilot through this storm that weakened his thopter. But, like, they get out of the thopter and start running. And it seems like they could use a little cardio work, by the way. And, because, like, <laughs> and, and they barely manage to escape the worm, you know. They're, um, so it's literally bigger than the guild spaceships. Um, that's what Paul says, which is absolutely crazy because imagine how big the guild spaceships must be. Like, they transfer the Atreides, like, everything the Atreides had. And the Harkonnens. Yeah, and the Harkonnens. And, you know, so just imagine the, the big guild spaceships and just a sandworm, you know. It's like... Like Jupiter and Jupiter and Earth, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe well, not, but like, like the the thopter relative to the to the sandworm, probably like Jupiter and Earth. Yeah. Well, at least the way he lands the thopter is pretty impressive because he kills the thopter speed on the sand so that they they don't die from the crash. Yeah, mm. honestly, it's pretty ingenious because like sand is, I guess it could be compact, but since they're on the sand dunes. I guess he relies on the fact that they were just blown there, so they're relatively malleable or able to crash through while still softening his landing. I guess it's the only real way to make it happen because imagine having a luxury of having an automated landing gear right now. Yeah. But sadly, I guess the Fremen didn't include it on the Doctor because 
I guess they had to Secrecy. make it undetectable in the mm-hmm. first place by the Harkonnens. But even if they had probably installed one, I don't think the system would be working after the storm that they just went through. Oh so yeah, they probably <laughs> probably most always. of the most of the systems on their on their yeah. ship would have been destroyed anyway. Mm-hmm. Any electronics just don't survive yeah, the storm. I think that may yeah. also be a reason why they started like retrofitting the doctors when they recaptured them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. That is, you know, but yeah, Paul's a skilled pilot, though, honestly. Yeah, mm, even even Jessica's admiring his competence, you know, he's got mm-hmm. he's got some skills at the at the joystick. <laughs> yeah, so the crash course mm-hmm. lessons. Yeah, well, not crash course. He's not crashing. <laughs> like, well, I mean, he kind of did. He kind of did, but at the end, he kind of, you know. Yeah, it was out of his control. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. he can't help it. The wing nothing. snaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but at this rate, I think even though you said that <laughs> they needed some cardio lessons, I think the endurance of Paul and Jessica are still kind of admirable. They could still, I feel mm. like, compete some some professionally, like against some professional athletes in our world. After all, remember, not only it's not only just like this time period that they have to run because you gotta take into context the entire four hours of struggling with the sandstorm. So, if I suspect that, like. It's like any other like like vehicle. It probably was a struggle to twist the steering wheel a lot, like, mm-hmm. like against the power of uh, like thousands, like hundreds of miles of per hour winds wind. Yeah, tear out the metal. Mm-hmm. So obviously it helps that warm is coming. They can still run and they can also hear it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think like it's the sound that the warm makes, like the whole muted whisper, the hissing and the abrasive slipping emitted from the warm itself or is it made by its motion through the sand? Um, I guess it's motion, right? Because as it moves through the sand, I think it pushes the sand up and it yeah. kind of slides around. But maybe thinking... the, the hissing is, is from the warm. <laughs> yeah, maybe from think, the warm. But I think the I mean slithering in a sense yeah. Yeah, it has yeah. to have friction, right? So yeah. But uh, imagine this guild spaceship hissing at you. That's <laughs> that's a, that's a little bit scary, right? And uh, yeah, so you have to. Right, I mean, I did say, you know, they need to do some more running drills, but, I mean, Paul's already in good shape. He fought for a long time with Halleck, if we remember that, all the way back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so he's, you know, at least he's got the wheels, right? Yeah, well, I mean, not to mention Jessica's pregnant, and she's... Yeah, basically... and she's still, you know, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. That's, that's impressive. also very impressive, yeah. <laughs> We're not encouraging pregnant mothers to do exercise, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're right. <laughs> Okay, so here we see that Paul describes the worm as bigger than a guild spaceship. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try to, I guess, maybe we're going to try to visualize it for y'all. Uh-huh. So how big do you actually think the worm is in terms of, I guess, the most common American metric is football fields. Not like <laughs> actual football, but American football. <laughs> uh-huh. So I guess it depends on how big the spaceship right, is. So let's say in our world, cruise ships are around three football fields long and typically about like 20 something stories okay um, yes well to put that into context a football field is 100 yards or in the metric system around 110 meters uh-huh. and we know that these worms grow to be around 400 meters meaning that they're almost four times the size of a football field uh-huh. and i would imagine a guild spaceship to be two to three football fields so that's pretty crazy. If you Where, think about was it. the 400 meter measurement for like the smaller worms or the I think for worms? a fully sized, full, like full size in, in the deep desert? Yes. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Four football fields. That's uh, that's pretty long. I can barely, you know. It's a massive mouth. Yeah. I, I can't really imagine that. That's, that's really long. 
That's guy. 400 yards. Wow. That's 400 yards is 400 meters or half a mile, half a, half a kilometer. Yeah. Wow. Half a kilometer. Isn't it like a fourth of, or yeah, it is half a kilometer. My yeah. bad. My bad. Yeah, no, but, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, I was thinking like, in uh, miles. Oh yeah. I mean, it's so hard for us to convert between meters and miles. Like, it's because, so hard, yeah. yeah, honestly, I don't know why the U.S. doesn't just switch okay. to well, switch I mean, to metric. Yeah, but yeah, we like I guess. To be special. Yeah, right. <laughs> special in many ways. The imperial system is kind of dead, right? Anyways, <laughs> so, Some <king> spot. <laughs> right. So there's a new book, the Kitab al Labar. So, okay, so I don't really know what this is. So Nolan, do you, since you're our religious expert, do you have a an idea on the etymology of the name of this book or whether there's any religious context at all? Well, from the, just firstly from the name, I could tell it wasn't like a Christian book because mm-hmm. it doesn't it's look like Arabic. It. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an Arabic type of book. So I searched it up and it's a 14th century Arabic book with like the, it's a whole, the full name of it is actually a, a whole lot longer. It's, a, it's like what, a couplet? So it's like a whole poem or something. Oh, really? So, so like oh, if you my. think current like light novel and anime titles are long and like really, like please think again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> historically, yeah. they've been doing it. <laughs> yeah, they've been doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> they are pretty dumb, but do you know yeah, why yeah. they named themselves like that? I heard like it's sort of like a grab attention the long yeah, yeah 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 so apparently when the author begins to first publish his work they post it on a website for everybody to read and mm-hmm. to capture the readers' attention they have to name oh. their titles like that yeah so like a big pause into the text flying by yeah so oh, yeah. If, when when their book does become popular they uh I mean I guess they, they might change it. their titles yeah. but uh other sometimes they don't that's a little ridiculous though imagine you're just scrolling through goodreads and then you see a book that's takes up the whole page the title yeah (laughs) that time i beat it's like an adventure that got transported into another world and then started up a drugstore it's like question mark (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh my god i don't i don't want to you know literally the meta now is just make the synopsis the uh the title Yeah, yeah yeah no no need for back cover you know things anymore just make it the title very sure yeah okay so back to this book though according to britannica the purpose of this book was to describe the basic factors that play a role in the historical development of islamic countries so it's just a history book a textbook per se mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting cool cool yeah so you know not much from it but they do have a they they do have a quote from it right so uh, so it seems like yeah they kept this uh, in in year ten thousand the Kitab al Abar is still alive. Yep. <laughs> cool. So I found it was really interesting that Paul's visions aren't like the super accurate things we come to expect from books like these because generally these visions are oh I see it and it happens exactly by like one by one right and then, yeah but for example here he saw Idaho with them in the vision but Idaho is dead now right so Herbert describes this beautifully. Um, in a quote, but the set of the vision had been subtly different, like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness, been absorbed by memory, and now failed of perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. So it's a really spatial way of interpreting um, his visions. Yeah. I think having a spatial is the only real way for us to visualize it or to conceptualize it because otherwise we can't 
our, our brain only because of the 3D world that we live in can only imagine things in a spatial context, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I guess also like at this point, his visions are no more than a hunch, I guess, a suggestion of what could be a reality, but not actually clear enough to be of much use. Because I don't think they're really visions, right? They're not like magical yeah. or anything. They're just his calculations running and mm -hmm. he doesn't have all the data um, to, to yeah. run perfect calculations, right? He, he like mm -hmm. couldn't have known that you know that the generator would have been left on at the advanced base and attracted all the sardaukar and then and then you know so his visions probably since he doesn't have all the information they're not really visions they're just you know they're just his best estimates and he did get here you know he got to this position but you know there were some errors and of course the the longer the like the further the vision is away from his current point in time the more room there is for error because the errors kind of wreck up right yeah, but so what you're trying to say is that his visions aren't exactly visions and instead they're yeah. sort of ultra realistic scenarios that he creates from his more deep powers. Mm -hmm. He's no right. more than an okay. overthinker. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that doesn't explain how he's able to see things that he's never seen before. True. So I feel like there there isn't a base there because when he was on Caladan, he was seeing stuff on Arrakis when he's never been there. So right. So there's yeah. there's still sort of a supernatural element there. That's a good point. Just, but yeah. I think it's more just calculation. I mean, there's yeah, there, you're right. There is some supernatural, and we can't explain that. But I feel like the best explanation for why his visions are wrong sometimes is uh, is that he he miscalculated. Yeah, he miscalculated. Yeah, but I mean, the whole the whole supernatural part is something that you know we don't have Cannot enough. Cannot be like, explained. We are, we can't explain. I mean, it'll probably be explained later, but we you know don't really. Get have an answer as of yeah now. We, we don't really get to know about that yet mm -hmm. cool so here we yeah. see paul releasing himself to this vision that he feels and though in a way he doesn't see a hard future that he could follow he strikes forward anyways and just cut is only left to follow him blindly so they keep walking aimlessly thinking only of the immediate choices ahead of them setting like a steady rhythm walking for i guess just wait for fate to decide what happens next, right? Because what we know and what Paul and Jessica know is that they're going to wander deeper and deeper into what they call the deep desert. And all we know is that there's a bunch of sand, there's a bunch of worms, and there's not enough rocks to stay safe on. So here we kind of see Paul maybe leaning into the prophecy and hoping, if anything, it maybe provide an answer. Uh huh. Well, I think he's sort of resigned himself to the mindset that whatever happens, happens. Because Fate isn't going to wait for him, and he's just going to have to head in blind sometimes, especially in yeah. times of crisis. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, he's kind of resigned himself to the fate. But then again, you know, he's like kind of realizing that it keeps changing. So, you know, he, he's kind of <laughs> yeah. finding the balance between his visions and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. In real life. Here we actually see him like attempt to balance and stuff. Remember, because he told us that he wanted to like not blindly trust his vision so maybe we're seeing him find a balance mm -hmm. okay now we get to my quote so it occurred to her that mercy was the ability to stop if only for a moment there was no mercy where there could be no stopping oh, so yep. jessica is kind of true right mercy is subjective depending on the situation that one is in it keeps changing right so when there's no room for mercy mercy could just be as simple as a little pause from the action in this case, we see the Fremen definition of mercy, which is basically you stop from, I guess, hearing and feeling every single painful moment of walking in the desert. But I guess, I guess, standalone, it's not really a satisfiable answer, right? Mm -hmm. Because everything 
is perfect and then just like stopping for a bit and being like take a break isn't really enough to like oh that's mercy but when the environment changes it becomes a whole another thing so it just remembers like that i guess a person's productivity that i heard on youtube and like their motivation and how they work is usually tied to the environment that they're in because mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. like you're typically able to like in theory work but if you're environment or like if your table is cluttered and there's a bunch of distractions nearby you have more stuff that will inhibit your ability to work Mm -hmm. so i think in a way the environment is super important and the context of this situation is like the deciding factor for paul and jessica they have to find their own balance they have to adjust to the environment or i guess they can't really do that for them here because they can't just pick up and go to a new environment they just have (laughs) to figure it out they have to to stay on a rockus and figure it out yeah yeah. So, well, I guess this is why that there's survival training in the military where they have to do lots of crazy things. I mean, I know some places you have to be able to retrieve items in water without hands. So that's an environment where nobody will want to be in. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm or sometimes that. they're going to have to be able to be in cold water without shivering. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So in essence, the point of the training is to be prepared for all sorts of situations and know what to do in them. Yeah. And keeping focus during these hardships will pay off in the long run. Right. I agree. Oh, yeah. it's, it's staying adaptable and kind of staying flexible with your mindset so that, you know, you're not too locked into things you already know how to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I know for SEAL training, they basically kick you into the water with your hands tied and oh, you get like a, really? you get like a mask or something, but then the instructor jumps in after you and then tries to like pull away your oxygen from your thing. So oh. you're just underwater trying to unbind your hands and feet while your instructor is like taking out your oxygen. Oh my, that's rough. <laughs> How does that work? Your hands are like tied. Oh my, yeah, that's... Just wiggle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just... It reminds me of like, you know, like how the, if the bug falls into water, they just like wiggle, especially like those worms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I don't okay. That's That's yeah. funny. I actually did not know that, but right. Cool. Yeah, okay, really cool so quote. Yeah. Moving on, I'm going to talk about Gurney. So Gurney is brought back up again, and Paul says some pretty good quotes here from Gurney. So I wholeheartedly agree with this quote that he says, better a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifice and strife. I guess my interpretation is you might as well focus on the positives in the scenarios, even if they're not really positives because it's a dry morsel and maybe it's just a bit of quiet. But like it's better than the alternative of just complaining, which changes nothing in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that as well, but... I also believe that it's part of human nature to complain a lot when there's an event that's just out of your control and gets in your way. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone has had that moment when you felt utterly helpless and tired and just wanted to complain your heart out. Yeah. yeah. Also human nature to express your grievances. So that's mm-hmm. part of it. Agree. Okay. So now we have gotten to my quote, which is also coincidentally from Gurney. It goes... I can hear him now, and I will make the rivers dry, and sell the land into the hand of the wicked, and I will make the land waste, and all that is therein by the hand of strangers. Wow. So truly an emotionally impactful quote. I know, right? It's so deep. Yeah, and, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's very religious, like I said. It kind of feels really biblical. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, it sounds as if the quote is referring to a traitor, someone who sells the land to the hands of the wicked. So uh-huh. that the sh- strangers could destroy it. Yeah. But 
I feel like the quote is also quite ambiguous. So he could have just been talking about desert erosion and <laughs> how it makes rivers dry and turns it into waste by the hand of strangers, which uh-huh. in this case means that the rivers are now covered in sand and debris. Right. And <laughs> the strangers would probably be the Harkonnens, right? Who's stra- yeah. Who are strange to this land. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you if you try to think about it it doesn't really make sense if you uh put try to put like groups into the the quotes so if you say like you know like who's selling the land who's the wicked you know and who's the strangers right i don't think the the atreides definitely didn't sell the land into the harkonnen's hands right i mean yeah the friend there's definitely many different meanings for it yeah i mean if you flip it around you know the harkonnen's didn't sell the land to the atreides because that would imply the atreides are wicked and that's not true right so (laughs) So it's it's really hard to interpret, but I think the overall concept is correct. Yeah, I mean, it's just... In the original context, however, it's actually from the Bible. So yeah, you're right. This is a religious quote. Uh, it's from Ezekiel chapter 30. And initially, it was just a curse from God, basically cursing is Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylon. Basically, you know, they invade and Israel cries and then God is like, I will curse them. I guess I'll help you fight them. So, oh, it is a religious this is like quote. A punishment. Yeah, this is like the punishment of God onto before the Israelites. And now he's helping them like come out of it. So this is just one of those moments. Oh, okay. Oh, so we get is. a religious take and a non-religious take uh-huh. on it. And it's right. surprisingly quite similar in <laughs> idea. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah, I, I actually Here, didn't know that was a religious quote. So, mm-hmm. it's just like a way of wording stuff, you know, that like mm-hmm. hints at the, yeah, I'm a saying, religious you know, background, it feels, right? It feels so biblical. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, I will make, you know, yeah, and I will make, I feel like. Uh, I this feel is like, why some yeah. people actually like, study the Bible as an English major, and I find it really strange because. That's actually interesting because there's a lot of linguistics <laughs> in the Bible. I feel there like is. it's not. It is, yeah, the writing style is so unique to it. You know, it feels biblical. Yeah, you can you read it and you feel it, right? It's, it's not, like Pokemon. I can tell if it's a Pokemon or not. I was like, <laughs> used to be able to tell before the new art style. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I knew a Digimon fake when I saw it. Just kidding. <laughs> Digimon? Yeah, I, I haven't heard about Digimon. that in a while. You didn't watch Digimon? Okay. I, I did, Digimon. bro. Digimon is the original Isekai. Yeah, Digimon was the original, so I checked it out. And I was like, it was okay. It was okay. Meh. Mid. Okay, I watched it when I was like eight or so. So, I mean, I thought it was fire. That's oh, true. I grew up I... with Pokemon, though. <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't watch much Pokemon when I was growing up. I didn't Dang. watch much of anything, to be honest. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. You're missing out, Humphrey. Uh-huh. That was my summer. Summer is like sitting on Pokemon.com scrolling through episodes of Pokemon. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. wow. The nostalgia, huh? Oh, cool. Okay, back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> Away from Pokemon and Digimon. Okay, so here's Jessica thinking about why she's feeling the things that she does. So she feels a certain type of quote-unquote fear towards Paul. And she... She feels like it's kind of hard to talk to him because she feels disconnected. So, in a way, I guess it's part of her Bene Gesserit training to be very self-aware of what she's feeling and, like, the source of her own emotions and actions. It kind of reminds me of how in debate, where you ask yourself at the end of the day, no matter how pretty or, like, whatever the argument was, no matter which side it took, at the end of the day, how does the argument tie back to the emotion? You gotta go to the source, right? You gotta deal with the source in order to fix the problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Jessica, 
I think she fears Paul's strangeness, but I think what she really fears is the unknown because yeah. she's unfamiliar with this cold and calculating version of her son that seems to see things that even her with her higher benefits or education cannot yeah, see. Right. So if I had to relate this to something, I guess it would be similar to the fear of death because we don't fear death because it's terrifying like a monster. We fear it because it's unknown what happens to us uh, after. Yeah. Yeah. And Jessica's just worry of what's to come, which is the source of her fear. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree. I agree. Definitely. I mean, he's, Paul has changed so much in such a short span of time. I think it's normal for Jessica to be thrown off, especially, especially her mother. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a mother. And also she's used to having more information and this is totally uncharted territory for her. You know, nobody knows what the extent of the Kwisatz Haderach, uh capabilities are. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, she's used to being kind of, again, well, not in control, but she's used to having more information and being able to make reasonable decisions. But here it's just all bets are off. And I think that's kind of what's throwing her off. Yeah. Okay, so here I'm going to read a very interesting sentence that I found funny. So it says, okay, I don't know how to say that. Eider wind? Eider? I don't know. I, I think, yeah, Eider or Eider. Eider wind feathered paws cheeks, ruffled the folds of his news <laughs> i cannot <laughs> it's too many words so i found this interesting because i was just like feathered ruffle and I, I was like ader so initially it caught my eye because of like ader is he trying to say odor so i searched it up and turns out it's a bird species it's a oh. species of duck or geese that's renowned for its soft downy feathers used to fill pillows and quotes so then oh, so it's like a soft that, I, came, yeah. I came back and i was like why is like Herbert throwing in a bunch of like soft feathery like references in this sentence? Yeah, and yeah. I guess to tie it back to the book, to me it seems that it foreshadows a hopeful, comforting future. I mean, despite obviously the sand against his face and like that's a little uncomfortable, but it's better than the storm that they just went through. So I'm sure that while they're stuck in the middle of nowhere, they can't move across the dunes because of the worms. I'm sure that hopefully this is like a signaling that there's better days to come for them. They'll keep surviving. Yeah, yeah but. Well, either way, it's the first glimpse of hope we've seen in a while. As for my guess of what it means, I think it's a sign that they'll be able to receive the Fremen's help. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, it's some good vibes getting from, from the wind. And and, and uh, <laughs> especially in this harsh environment, I, I think yeah. I think anything good coming out of this harsh environment is definitely a sign of something. It's probably some, some something symbolic because there's not supposed to be anything good in this desert, right? So... Mm-hmm. Other than spice, I guess, but yeah, that's <laughs> Bro, like, the best know. place to get high on spice in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. Cool. Okay. So Paul mentions natural sounds that don't attract the worms. And I think this means that they have to move in inconsistent strides and travel in a way that imitates the natural environment of the desert in order to not be detected by the sandworms. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Is that what you guys think, or do you guys have a different idea? Um, I think that the natural sounds involve something like the Fremen moving uh, that we saw. Remember when we were the on weird. that flight? Yeah, they're, they're just weird. kind of shuffling yeah. around and feeling the <laughs> ground, right? And I mean, basically, they're being careful not to disrupt like any of the drum stands and stuff like that, right? So mm-hmm. uh, maybe the normal natural desert sounds kind of evolve out of the wind, the you know small creatures kind of moving around on the sand and. And of course, the worms won't bother with that. So I guess the Fremen and Paul and Jessica and have to kind of imitate them, right? Yeah, I have a similar idea like that. So 
I believe it's supposed to like replicate the uh, normal things in the environment as well. So desert creatures, maybe like the wind blowing across the, that type of shifting. And I know that I know from like okay, I know this isn't accurate. I'm sure and all, but I know from reading like spy novels. <clears throat> sure, sure, yeah, very very non-fictional guys. But basically, when like when you sneak through the nighttime, you're supposed to move at like a snail's inch, at like very slow. Like I think it's supposed to move like. A couple meters every like couple minutes so Ooh. from a perceptual standpoint it looks like nothing is actually moving but you are like moving though like you're uh -huh. just moving like taking Very it forever yeah, it just takes forever to move that yeah, spot it's just imagine yeah it's imagine you're shooting a motion kind of stop uh -huh. motion film right and then but like actually like slower than that as well so, like, yeah that's how like a sniper moves. slower wow yeah snipers move really really slowly well, i mean because if they're caught then they're dead yeah so oh, yeah. i think that's like how they're supposed to be moving or like in weird erratic moves but not like yeah. too erratic i mean because so, like, the yeah. human eye is drawn to motion more than anything mm -hmm. so yeah th i think that would make sense especially if they're trying to stand cover Yep. Wait, does that mean we could like trip like a motion detector if we tried that? Um, yes, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I think I think that's kind of uh, feel like too I far. Think, I think you could. I think you could probably not trip a motion detector if you move slow enough. Yeah, but I mean, you have to like slowly get into the the view of it and then slowly get out. I mean, there's definitely some calculation behind it. Something like you know some oh difference between the current frame and the next frame and the next frame and the next frame and you know, and so. whether it's like an animal movie yeah. or not <laughs> i mean because then the motion detector would be tripped by rain and, and clouds and stuff right but it's not so so yeah well, i mean act with there, there, it must also run as some sort of ai to tell like what's alive and what's not maybe um, potentially but i, I mean, mean i, know some, I guess it, sometimes it does and people just start ignoring the motion detector <laughs> yeah well i guess it depends on how advanced it is Mm -hmm. uh -huh. right right cool but yeah on that note i believe that concludes the discussion for this episode of the dune not enter podcast make sure to read to the end of chapter 27 and dune in next time when we discuss it as always thanks to all of you listeners for being patient with us and being interested in our thoughts follow us on instagram at do not enter reddit u slash do not enter twitter at do not enter and email us at do not enter at gmail.com that is d-u-n-e-n-o-t-e-n-t-e-r at gmail.com please 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 contact us with questions feedback or i dare say whose turn is it my turn uh, oh. yeah i think it's nola's turn yeah okay. c c c c c corrections congratulations all right wow so you even said it correctly yeah you even said yes. correct uh, i see what you did there um <laughs> anyways uh please let us know if we've made any mistakes so we won't hesitate in fixing them uh also if you guys have a few seconds and want to support us uh we're not asking for money we're not that desperate yet but uh, give us a <laughs> yeah. review on itunes we'll save that for college um yeah. give us a review on itunes or spotify it'll take a few seconds of your time just make an account and click the five star button because you know no other button is there it's so the you have to you have to click that right um but <laughs> But basically, it helps us uh, get our show up the charts and get Dune to a wider variety of listeners. But more personally, it lets us know that we're doing a good job and motivates us to keep creating content. So we really appreciate if you went and did that. But otherwise, have a great week and we will see you all back very soon. Hey, guys. See you next time. <laughs>